Let us turn this afternoon to the well-known chapter from Isaiah, chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. We read together the entire chapter. Hear then the word of God. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced, For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, (coughs) and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out to death, poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So far the reading from Scripture. (laughs) 
This afternoon we focus on the summary of the Word of God as we together confess it in Lord's Day 15 of the Catechism, page 529 in the back of the Book of Praise. And there we read the following. What do you confess when you say that he suffered? During all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Thus, by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, He has redeemed our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtained for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? Though innocent, Christ was condemned by an earthly judge, and so he freed us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Does it have a special meaning that Christ was crucified and did not die in a different way? Yes. Thereby, I am assured that he took upon himself the curse which lay on me, for a crucified one was cursed by God. After the proclamation of God's word, let us respond to him, singing from Psalm 85, the stanzas 2 and 3. Brothers, sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ. If we stop for a moment and take notice, it will be obvious to us that there is a lot of suffering in this world. Hardly a week goes by, and there is not some headline in the news which reminds us of this suffering. An earthquake here, a devastating flood over there, In one city, a mass shooting, perhaps in a high school. In another town or area, a suicide bomber. And behind every one of those headlines are real people. Real families. Real children. People who lose a father, a mother, a child to death. And you know, a lot of the suffering in the world never even makes it to the headlines. 
there are thousands upon thousands of people living at or well below the poverty line. Each day, they don't have enough to eat. We don't know their names, but you know they're real people. Real people who are really hungry. And that's just in the wide world around us. It's also, if we take a moment to stop and notice, it's also quite close to us. Suffering is not only out there, it's also quite close to home. As you drive around this area, Guelph, Laura, Fergus, it's all kinds of people that you don't know by name. But a lot of them are suffering, struggling with drug addiction, alcohol addiction, suffering because of broken marriages, broken homes, families, homelessness. They're all real people with real relatives, and they're all really suffering. And what's there in the world where their father are closer to home is also, in certain ways at least, here in the church. You know, we gather for Sunday worship and, and we talk, maybe even in the coffee social after the worship service, and we get a little update on each other, how work is going, situation, extended family, immediate family. But if in some way or other you come to know some of your brothers and sisters here in this congregation much more deeply, much more intimately, you build up some bond, relationship of trust, and they really start to open up to you. Perhaps they start to tell you what happened in their past. Perhaps they start to unload what's going on in their present. And the more you hear what this brother or sister has gone through, is going through, maybe you even feel it a little bit in your own body. Your heart aches, your stomach turns. You think, how do they keep on going day after day? What a burden to bear. Suffering. We are no strangers to suffering, even if sometimes we try to cover it up. And this afternoon, the Catechism is drawing our attention not just to suffering in general, but to the suffering of one particular person. What do you confess when you say that he, Jesus Christ, suffered? 
And even at an initial glance here in Lord's Day 15, we we can pick up enough to know that he suffered intensely. And now how does that connect to you? How does that connect to all of us? On the one hand, we might say, and that is correct too, that certainly this person, Jesus Christ, who suffered so intensely as he did, he can understand. He can can empathize. He can identify with what we're going through. And that's such a comfort to know that. And that's true. That's also what the Word of God teaches us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's gone through intense temptation, intense suffering, and when you go through hard times, it's not as if you have a high priest who doesn't understand the kind of things you're going through. He's been through them himself. But as true as that is, brothers and sisters, that's not at the heart of what we confess here. And in fact, our comfort is so much greater than that. Because what is presented to us here is not Jesus Christ, the great sympathizer, but Jesus Christ, the great Savior. You need someone, brothers and sisters, who not only understands what your sufferings are like, but someone who redeems and saves you from your sins. And that, then, is what has the focus this afternoon. And we will look at it under this theme, taking from the words of Isaiah 53 that we read together, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, Jesus Christ. And we'll see that this punishment that he endured has given us three things. First of all, atonement, then acquittal, and then a very precious assurance. The previous Lord's Day, which may have been some weeks ago that you paid attention to this, brothers and sisters, but in Lord's Day 14, we confess various truths about the birth, the conception and birth of Jesus Christ. So there, we were at the very beginning of his earthly life. Now we go ahead, just one Lord's Day, and suddenly we hear about the end, his crucifixion, his death. And you might wonder, if you think it through for a moment, you might wonder, Why does the catechism go so quickly from birth, the beginning, to death, crucifixion, the end? Well, of course, it's following the Apostles' Creed, but then the question only becomes, why does the Apostles' Creed go so quickly? Certainly there was so much that happened in between those two great events of his birth and his crucifixion and death. Think of all the miracles that he did. He made the lame to walk. He made the blind 
to see. He even made the dead to rise up and live again. And each one of those miracles was so great, so grand. Should that not receive at least a little attention in the creed or the catechism? What about all of his teaching? He went from here to there, preaching and teaching. Think of the Sermon on the Mount, that most famous teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of those unforgettable parables. The sower who went out to sow. The prodigal son who came back to his father. All of that deep, profound teaching that was unlike what they heard from their other teachers, should not that have something there in the creed, in the catechism? But in fact, brothers and sisters, it does. If you notice how the catechism draws that out during all the time that he lived on earth. Yes, especially at the end, but not only at the end. From his birth, through childhood, the beginning of the ministry, through all the preaching, all the teaching, all the miracles, through that whole time, it was suffering after suffering after suffering. And it's good. It's good for our faith. It's good, brothers and sisters, for our sense of gratitude to our Savior that we take a few moments this afternoon and reflect on that. That every day, as he was preaching and teaching and doing miracles, it was yet another day of suffering. Right away after he was born, no sooner was he born and Herod wanted to kill him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted to use some of the language of Isaiah 53 and he had to be taken away. His family had to flee all the way to Egypt. Born, but immediately someone wanted to put him to death. What a way to enter earthly life. And yes, in due time, He came back, he grew up, and then that grand event of his baptism and the descent of the Holy Spirit, as we confess, he's anointed the Christ, the Messiah, prophet, priest, and king. And when someone normally enters public ministry, sometimes we we speak about this too, we talk about the honeymoon period, oh, it will be difficult But at least for a few months, maybe even that year, everything should seem to go somewhat smoothly, but not for our Savior. No sooner did he enter public ministry upon his baptism, and immediately Satan is there, full force. One temptation after the other, after the other, 40 days and night, the wilderness, suffering from the get-go his public ministry. And as he taught, as he did miracles, oh yes, in the beginning, the crowds loved it. But they didn't always get it. And here was the long-awaited Messiah. 
And they were glad to hear some teaching from him. They were glad to see him do miracles. But so many of them, brothers and sisters, they misunderstood. And what was that? For Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to stand up in front of the crowds day after day after day. And these people, God's own people, covenant people, they misunderstood. Or they didn't fully understand. Or as time went on, they rejected. Especially the leaders. They ridiculed, they planned, and they schemed to kill him. Every day again, suffering, suffering, more suffering. Knowing, as he did the whole time, that even though that daily suffering was intense, it was only going to become that much worse. Brothers and sisters, we never quite know what it's going to be tomorrow, next day, week. But Jesus Christ knew what he had come to do. He told his disciples that repeatedly. He said, the Son of Man has come to be delivered up to death. He's come to be crucified. And every waking moment, that was there before him. That ultimate suffering that he would have to go through. No wonder then, that already the prophet Isaiah is inspired to call him a man of sorrows. Not just a man, brothers and sisters, who went through a sorrow here, a dip, a valley in his life, and then some weeks or some months later, perhaps, went through another dip, another valley, another sorrow. No, he was a man of sorrows. This characterized his whole life. And you might say, you, you might think to yourself, yes, but aren't there some other people that we might legitimately call a man or a woman of sorrows? Because some people, they go through so much, and you can see it on them. You can see it on them. Look at their eyes. Their eyes don't sparkle anymore. Their eyes are dull from all of the suffering. And even if they, they, they smile, it's as if the smile is always mixed with pain. It's, it's a half-hearted smile. It's just because of everything that they're going through or have gone through. There's people out there, brothers and sisters, that hardly seem to be able to cry anymore because the tear ducts dried up years ago. There are people, perhaps you even know one, and they have and they are going through so much that you would say, there's a man of sorrows. There's a woman of sorrows. But not like this man of sorrows without in any way diminishing the sufferings that some people go through, this is unique. This is in a category all of its own. You see, brothers and sisters, because 
Some people suffer because of sickness, long-term, chronic illness. And that's a heavy suffering. And some people suffer because of their sinful, their foolish decisions. And then the consequences come, and it's a lot of misery. Some people suffer because of the sins and the foolishness of other people, which impact their lives very directly. But this man, this person, Jesus Christ, it wasn't because of sickness. And it wasn't because of his own sinful decisions. Far from it. He was without sin. Hebrews 4, verse 15. It was, yes, because of the sins of others. But look what the Catechism says. Christ bore (coughs) in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin, not just of one person who sinned against him in a certain painful way, or two or three, but the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Normally, we don't even like too much to speak about the wrath of God. Talk about the love of God? Talk for hours. The wrath of God? Don't tell me too much about that, please. But it's there, brothers and sisters. Not there like it is in our lives. We get mad, we get angry, we get full of wrath. And that's because we're sinful. But when God's wrath is poured out, and we sang this together in Psalm 97, when God's wrath is poured out, it's poured out because he's perfectly righteous. And he cannot dwell with sinners. He cannot accommodate sin. He is so perfectly holy, right, and just that out of that righteousness, he must pour out his wrath upon sin. But not only are we often hesitant to speak about the wrath of God, Little do we pay attention to the fact that the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race was what caused such intense suffering for our Savior. And if you would turn with me this afternoon to the canons of Dort, it's good that we look more closely at exactly what this means. What is it that Christ suffered the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. The Canons of Dort, second chapter, page 573. Let's look first at Article 8. The efficacy, or you could say the, the effectiveness of the death of Christ. Canons of Dort, chapter 2, Article 8. For this was the most free counsel of God the Father, that the life-giving and saving efficacy, effectiveness, of the most precious death of his Son should extend to all the elect. As Jesus Christ said, in other words, 
I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus Christ died, he suffered, and he died for the elect. But let that truth not take anything away from what we confess a little bit earlier in the same chapter. Chapter 2, now back to Article 3. This death of the Son of God is the only, it's the most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for sins of infinite value and worth, abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins, and now here's the language that's like the catechism, of the whole world. And take with that, if you would, brothers and sisters, the last sentence of Article 4. Further, this death is of such great value, such great worth, because it was accompanied by a sense of, here's another word from the catechism, the wrath and the curse, a little bit later, of God, which we, by our sins, had deserved. So the one article, Article 8, answers the question, for whom did Christ suffer and die? The elect. But the other articles, 3 and 4, answer this question. How big, how much value, how much worth, how much capacity, sufficiency, is in that suffering and death of Jesus Christ. And it's of such infinite value, brothers and sisters, that it could, it has the potential, it has the capacity to forgive the sins of the whole world. But then the other side of that, Lord's Day 15, is that when Jesus Christ was suffering under the wrath of God, he bore in his very physical body, he bore in his very own soul, the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Can you try and wrap, map, wrap your mind around that for a moment? Adam and all the sins that Adam did, day after day after day, he couldn't count them, his wife couldn't count them, you and I couldn't count them, and that was one man. Eve at his side. She sinned first, taking the forbidden fruit. But it wasn't the last sin in her life. His wife, mother, for that long life, sin after sin after sin. And those were just our first parents. What about their children? What about their grandchildren? What about their great-grandchildren? What about the whole population before the flood? That world population that grieved the Lord to his very heart because it was so corrupt, so twisted. And what about after the flood, after the purging? And the sin didn't stop. All through the centuries, all these people walking upon the face of the earth, all of their sins right up to you and to me. Can you somehow try to imagine what a huge collection of sins that is. And God's perfect, holy, righteous wrath against the sin of the whole human race. 
That is a suffering that words could never, ever capture. But if we had to pick one scriptural word to try and bring it out, then best we go straight to Isaiah 53 and use that word in verse 5. Crushed. Again in verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. You know, brothers and sisters, when we talk about the suffering of our Savior, we often say he suffered for us. That's right. Sometimes we say he died for us. That's right, too. Sometimes we say he was sacrificed for us. Completely correct. Do we ever say, with Isaiah 53, he was crushed for us? That's a harsh word. Crush. Break. Pulverize. But this was the intensity. This was the weight, brothers and sisters, of the suffering of Jesus Christ. And he did it. Not simply so that he could sympathize, identify with you. No, no, no. Much, much more than that. So that he could make peace between God and you. He made through those sufferings of infinite value and worth the only atoning sacrifice for us. Atonement. That means to bring back together again, to make peace. And when you think of that long, long list of your own sins, it would be enough, would it not be? If Jesus Christ had suffered so that all of those sins were forgiven. That, that is abundant grace sufficient. We would dare not ask for anything more than that. But you see, God gives more. Not only does he give us the full forgiveness of all of our sins on the basis of that suffering of Jesus Christ, but he also makes peace. That's what Isaiah 53 says. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us not just forgiveness, that too, but brought us peace. Think of the prodigal son who sinned so grievously against his father. Would have been enough if the father had said, Son, I forgive you. But he went farther. He said, Son, come back into the household. We'll even throw a feast for you. There's peace restored. And that's what the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ does for you, brothers and sisters, brings peace, wholesome relationship. The Father says, into my household, into my family you come. And that is still only part of the suffering for our sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. For as the Catechism goes on to point out, 
on the basis of the Apostles' Creed, it was not only what he suffered, but also under whom? Pontius Pilate, who was a governor, yes, but also a judge. And that therefore means that as Jesus Christ was coming closer and closer to that most intense part of his suffering, especially at the end of his life, he came into a courtroom. And that's not without special significance. His suffering was not straight to the cross, but via the courtroom to the cross. And why was that so important? There, Jesus Christ stood in the courtroom of Pontius Pilate. But Pontius Pilate, as all earthly governors, all earthly rulers, was under God. Romans 13 applied to Pontius Pilate just as much as to any prime minister or king. And Romans 13 teaches us that there's no governing authority in the whole world who has not been placed there by God, whether they recognize it or not, but that's who puts them in place. So there was a very real sense in which as Jesus Christ walked or was brought into the courtroom of Pontius Pilate, it was not only Pontius Pilate's courtroom, it was ultimately God's courtroom. And there, the judge said, this man, Jesus, is innocent. And he repeated it. He said to the crowds, I find nothing, nothing in this man that's deserving of death. In fact, at a certain point in the whole court proceeding, Pontius's wife came into the courtroom while he was still on the judgment seat with a message for him. Undoubtedly not an everyday occurrence. But she said to her husband, I've suffered so much, suffered so much in a dream because of, what did she say? That righteous man. Pilate had been saying it. He's innocent. There's nothing in this man worthy of death. And even Pilate's wife confirmed it. This is a righteous man. He's not a sinner. He's not a criminal. He's a righteous man. Well, brothers and sisters, when a righteous, innocent man walks into a courtroom and stands before a judge, what ought to happen? That judge should say, you go free. You're acquitted. You've done nothing wrong. And what did he say? You are condemned to die. You will be crucified. And the observer might say, travesty of justice. This is wrong. This is just so plain wrong. Well, yes, from a human perspective, it was a travesty of justice. But it was also a miracle of grace. Because you and I have a subpoena that's a summons to the courtroom. See, brothers and sisters, 
we too go to final glory, but via the courtroom. Just as surely as Christ went to his death via the courtroom, you and I will not make it to final glory except going through the courtroom. God's courtroom. No Pontius Pilate involved there. And there in that courtroom, different things could well be said of us than were said of Jesus. As the evidence is brought forth, so to speak, if the witnesses were called to take their stand, what would they say about you? What would they say about me? Innocent, innocent. This man, this woman's done nothing deserving of death. This is a righteous man. This is a righteous woman. Evidence after evidence, witness after witness, would all be the same. This man, this woman, this boy, this girl, a sinner. You want to know what they've all done wrong? You want to know how they've broken God's commandments? Here comes the list, longer than your arm by far. And when such a person stands in the court, a criminal record that goes on and on, What should the judge say? Condemned. Guilty. But for the sake of Jesus Christ, what will the judge say? Acquitted. Free. Because the judge himself, Jesus, beforehand, stood in Pilate's own court, the courtroom of God, He, though perfectly innocent, was completely condemned so that you and I, completely guilty, might be set eternally free, acquitted. And that's why it's such a good thing when we sing the Apostles' Creed to sing, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. But even that doesn't fully capture it. Because when Pilate condemned him to death, Pilate said, you shall be crucified. Crucified was a terrible, awful way to die. Nailing of hands, feet to the cross. Slow death, painful death, horrible. But it's remarkable that as horrific as death by crucifixion truly is, the catechism highlights curse, not physical suffering in and of itself. Curse. Because a crucified one was cursed by God. Remember how the canons of Dort also emphasized that? His death accompanied by a sense of God's wrath, and then it adds, and curse. Article 4. And the curse is something that's within the covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Within the covenant, there's blessing for those who obey. But there's also curse. 
for those who disobey. And we are not just people. We're covenant people by the grace of God, but that's who we are, brothers and sisters, covenant people. But then that also means that the sins that we commit are that much more grievous. Often we think of the sins that we commit in connection with certain commandments. Ah, I sinned against the third commandment again and I didn't stand up for the honor of God's name. Or I sinned against the fifth commandment and I lipped off against my father or my mother or a teacher. I sinned against the eighth commandment I was greedy. Sin against the seventh. Lust filled my eyes and heart. Sin, commandment, sin, commandment. But what now for a moment about sin and covenant? Whichever commandment it may be. But every sin against every commandment is within covenant. There's sins inside the covenant. And you know what it says in Deuteronomy 28. Those who obey are blessed. But those who disobey, those who break the commandments, are cursed. And that's a heavy, awful word. Curse. Perhaps it's for this very reason that at this point, Catechism narrows from we and emphasizes me. You notice that? 36, 38, us, we, us, we. 39, I. Curse which lay on me. Sometimes when things don't go so well in life and it drags on for a while, this thought can go through a saint's mind, through the mind of a child of God. Am I cursed by God? After all, look at, look at all these terrible things that I have to go through. Am I cursed by God? Brothers and sisters, if you've ever struggled with thoughts like that, be assured by this great comfort. That's why it's such a joy, and even if we sing the Apostles' Creed pretty well every Sunday, it's no burden to repeat that creed, to sing once more that he suffered under Pontius Pilate and was not hung, not shot to death, but he was crucified crucified for me. For me. That's what I'm singing about when I sing that Apostles' Creed. He was crucified, not just the fact that he was crucified, but that he was crucified for me. And thereby, I am assured that even though I deserve it, the curse which would rightly lay on me has been taken off my shoulders and my soul and has been placed on the body and the soul of my beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. 
it was unspeakably difficult for him. It is unspeakably comforting for us. Atonement, acquittal, assurance that we've been set free from the curse. Three huge blessings in a few short words of the Apostles' Creed. What a blessing to come here and sing the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. We'd sing it every Sunday again. Amen.